Haldeman's Pickens, nicknamed the Ocean Spectre by his father. He would join the Navy as a member of the HMS Zealous and would station here in Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, while it was here, Master Dickens reached a measure of success as an important figure in the city's amateur theater scene. So you can see uh, young Master Dickens here and here amongst a group of players. Uh, it was over the Christmas season in 1868. The naval officers performed a number of short comedies and pantomimes. Uh, young Master Dickens was the star, and the local colonist wrote, <clears throat> The principal character, Mr. Tittums, was taken by Mr. Dickens, the son of the world-renowned Boz. We cannot say more in praise of the great novelist's worthy scion that he is a veritable chip of the old block. Mr. Dickens sustained the part in a manner which gave evidence of great natural ability, combined with careful study, and his audience was convulsed with laughter from his first to his last. Dickens' children were not the only creations of his to reach Victoria. Uh, the first editions of his work would make their way to the city, and eventually to the vaults of the legislative library. At this point, I'll hand it over to Iona to show these books off. We're running a little bit behind schedule, but I think we'll be able to make it. Iona, over to you. Alright, thank you. Um, I don't know if... Oh, my slides yeah, did no, make it. Excellent. Yes, yes, they did make it. So, hello everyone, and again, thank you for joining us. So, just to give you a little bit of background. So the books at the Legislative Library that we have that are Dickens within our vault, um, all of them except for one was actually purchased from a Victoria resident named Harrison Garside in October of 1917. This was actually part of a, a larger acquisition of books that we had from Garside. Um, and interesting enough, uh, the total cost of that acquisition was set only $64. Now, all of these books are first bound edition volumes, and I'm emphasizing that word bound because all of Dickens' novels were actually originally um, published in a serial format. Do you just want to jump to the next slide? So this usually meant that like one or two chapters were kind of issued at regular intervals, like once a week, twice a week, usually as either a small standalone uh, pamphlet or novella or even a magazine. And here you can sort of see a, a case with this. Um, this is the beginning of The Great Expectations, which was published in Dickinson's magazine all the year round. Um, he actually published three of his novels sort of in this format in his magazines. So once the actual book had been issued in that serial format, the manuscript was then sent to his publishers to be formatted into a book and then bound and published. So how do I know that what we have are first editions? Because besides all efforts, many of the books that were published are not perfect. Sometimes there are typos and mistakes, and these errors are only noticed until after they have been published. So, I just wanted to jump to the next slide. It, it's usually in later editions, and where um, we try to actually see these words being corrected, but when it comes to um, our books for um, Dickens, we know that they are all first editions. So there should be a couple little graphics on this page, if you're willing. So you can see some of the mistakes that have happened within a couple of these books. The word um, holding was misspelled there in Postman Pickwick Papers, and on the other one, just going to click again, um, the word visitor was used for visitor. So we definitely know that these are all first editions because um, through much research we've been able to identify that we have a lot of these um, mistakes within these novels. So before I jump into seeing the books, uh, you may notice that some of the pages might have a dark or reddish brown coloring. Again, this is called foxing. So foxing is an age-related process of deterioration that causes spots and browning on old paper. It's very commonly seen in old books, but can also occur on other types of items like postage stamps or old paper money. Uh, the name is sort of derived from that reddish-brown color because it's sort of resembling the color of a common red fox. Um, unfortunately, how foxing occurs is still a bit of a mystery to those of us within the preservation and conservation world. Um, there's many possible reasons as to why it happens, such as like iron deposits um, that were stuck inside the paper during the paper making process. It could be environmental conditions, or it could just be age, or potentially all of the above. So with that, I'm now going to take a moment to switch screens so we can actually take a look at four of these novels. Okay. 
So the first book we're going to take a look at is the Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club. This, again, as Nicholas had mentioned, was Dickens' first novel. And the way that this book was actually um, came about was that the publisher had um, gone to Dickens basically to ask him uh, to supply a description of uh, written uh, like scripts essentially for a bunch of series of comical drawings that had been done by illustrator Robert Seymour. The images were of like mishaps and misadventures during hunting and fishing expeditions and Dickens basically had to tie it all together into a coherent story. Um, Dickens actually initially protested to do this commission because he actually really didn't know anything about hunting or fishing, but eventually he accepted the commission. So Robert Seymour had actually done the first two installments of the Pickwick Papers, but then he unfortunately died before completing it. So illustrator Robert William Buss and Hullboat Knight Brown, also known as Fizz, stepped in. And this was actually a critical moment because Fizz and Dickens would actually be lifelong collaborators with Diz illustrating most of Dickens' works, as you're going to see through some of these other novels. So the main um, the story when it comes to the Pickwick Papers is that the um, Samuel Pickwick, who is a wealthy and old gentleman and president of the Pickwick Club, um, suggests that he and other members should make journeys into the remote countryside and report on their findings to the rest of their members. So that's basically how he tied all these images together. And he basically did just sort of make all these like, interesting stories um, of things going on within the English countryside. And one example of this is the chapter, interestingly enough, on an election. Now, with Dickens, he always tends to put some type of social commentary in here. And around this time, they actually had made some changes to their election law. So Dickens kind of took the opportunity to poke fun at it. So this chapter is very much a satire on the election process. So the image that we're looking at over here, it doesn't necessarily um, match with any specific lines within this particular chapter, but it's sort of a, a combination of, of the various different events that are taking place. Um, so as we can see, what's happening in the fictitious town of Easton Swill, or Eat and Swill, if you will, um, there's two political parties called the Blues and the Buffs. They each have their own partisan newspaper, and the town population is completely divided between the two. And the agents for the two different candidates are using whatever underhanded means that they can to try and sway people's votes. Um, basically, there's a complete commotion going on. The town crier here is trying to call order, and it's not working out. The townspeople are fighting. They have all the signs of opposition for, for and against. And Mr. Pickwick up here eventually ends up on the election scaffold, so he can basically view the process taking place. Now, the Pickwick Papers did have quite some interesting influences. Um, one of them is that it actually encouraged many of these um, gentlemen clubs in society. Um, one good example was the Pickwick Bicycle Club in London, which was established in the year of Dickens' death, 1870, and is actually still in operation. But if you're familiar with other British literature, um, such as the P.G. Woodhouse author in his series, Jason Wooster. Uh, Wooster is members of the Drones Club, and even Sir Arthur Corlin Doyle with his Sherlock Holmes. Brother Mycroft is a member of his own quite unique gentleman's club. But another interesting um, aspect of this novel, again, was dealing with Christmas. Because in this book, there is one of Dickens' first sort of written descriptions of Christmas itself. And it's very much a wonderful, good-humored, happy-type Christmas. So within this particular chapter, Mr. Pickwick is visiting a family friend because he's there to see the daughter, the wedding of his daughter. And it just happens to be at Christmas time. So the entire farm is completely decorated out. And they have a, um, a Christmas tradition that happens. So up here, uh, Mr. Walder, who is the friend of Mr. Pickwick, has hung the mistletoe and Mr. Pickwick has decided to start off all merriment by giving um, the matriarch of the family, Mr. Walter's mother, the first kiss under the middle's toe. And after that, merriment basically ensues. So there is dancing, there are Christmas carols, there's a huge Christmas feast. Um, one of the interesting things about this particular chapter is the references and influence of snow. So England is very similar to a climate as we are here in Victoria. There's very little snow. 
But in the year that this chapter was published as a serial, which was in 1836, England actually had a really big snowfall. And so this chapter was released just a few days after that snowfall, and it became a perfect mirror to what was going on. So the whole chapter became a huge influence when it came to things like having snow on Christmas cards, even like the Christmas Carol, um, the White Christmas, and even it was in this book that actually I did write a Christmas Carol in it here. So. This book actually just sort of had a huge impact just when it came to like social customs. The next book we're going to take a look at, um, as Nicholas had mentioned, Dickens tends to use a lot of his own personal life when it came to his novels. And one of the best example is that, of course, is David Copperfield. This was Dickens' eighth novel and it was considered to be his favorite um, because it was so um, almost autobiographical. So the novel in itself, it basically follows the story of young David Copperfield and his life and adventures. It very much is a coming of age story, as it basically focuses on David Copperfield's psychological and moral growth. Dickens does have his usual commentary on social issues such as child labor laws, but for the most part, the book does focus on that main protagonist, David Copperfield. But one of the interesting things about this book, again, with Dickens using his own life, was that he decided to make David Copperfield a parliamentary reporter. I'm just going to have to flip the book around a little bit. So in here we have this image, again, which was done by Fizz, which basically is trying to show the process of David Copperfield learning how to do shorthand. So this image is actually entitled, Treadles makes a figure of parliament and I report him. And it's meant to follow the lines, my aunt and Mr. Dick represented the government or opposition as the case may be. And Treadles, with the assistant of Enfield speaker or a volume of parliamentary orientations thundered astonished invectives against them. So basically Treadles here is trying to do a mock debate um, to help David learn his shorthand. And this is something that comes right out of um, Charles Dickens' own memories, because his own parents, John Elizabeth, would hold mock debates for him when he was trying to learn shorthand. And the amount of detail in this that Fizz has done just shows how much they collaborated. So along the side here, um, there's some volumes of parliamentary reports, including uh, an issue of Hansard that is along the side. Along the bottom here, you actually have what is supposed to be a copy of the uh, Times of London, so the newspaper, and I can tell you, uh, newspaper reporting is really important when it comes to political research. Um, what's another fun little detail is that this volume here is actually meant to be the Mirror of Parliament. And as we know from Nicholas's speech, um, this is where Charles Dickens um, worked as a parliamentary reporter. Um, an interesting sort of connection was that the Mirror of Parliament was also owned by one of Dickens' it's Dickens's uncles. So that's one of the reasons why he ended up getting a job there. Another kind of little fun fact is that the Legislative Library actually does have a set of volumes of the Mirror of Parliament, which includes the years that Dickens worked there. He was there from 1831-32 season up until 1834. Unfortunately, we don't really know which um, reports are Dickens because all of the shorthand notes have been lost to time. Along with that, we are going to go to our next book. So now we're going to try and take um, a time to see in terms of how Dickens' novels really did uh, attempt to do some influence. And the first one we're going to take a look at is Nicholas Nickleby. This was Dickens' third novel, and it really was one of his sort of first attempts to try and um, cause some change within uh, actual, like, system so like make some reforms um basically this story is all about um nicholas nickleby and his family as they try to survive after the death of his father and to cope with those financial debts that were left and through some not so good assistance from nicholas's uncle ralph he gets a job at the doth boys 
um, hall school in Yorkshire that is run by this group, this Warford Squares. Uh, Squares basically takes unwanted children into a school and forces them to live in very terrible conditions. And Nicholas becomes quite disgusted with this and then works to try to bring down Squares' downfall. That's essentially the summary. There's other different plots that go along with his family. Now, in pre preparation for this novel, Dickens and Fizz together went to visit Bowes Academy, to which in 1823, um, this the headmaster of the school had been prosecuted for neglect after two pupils had become blind because of the severe treatment that they were getting. So when they visited the school about 10 years after-ish, um, the school had not really improved. Um, there were slight improvements, but not much, and it was still very common for children to be mistreated. So this caused Dickens to try and see if he can bring down this type of Yorkshire boarding school system that existed. It apparently seemed to be very um, common within the Yorkshire region. And that is essentially what this story is all about. So some images that I'm going to try and show you. So this was sort of one of the images in which um, is trying to display some of the mistreatment of the children. It is going along a, a passage on the day when um, I, I can only assume that they are being fed some type of medicinal element. It's called brimstone and treacle within the works of these pages, and they're basically being force-fed it. But this image also has other types of things where you're seeing some of the mistreatment that some of these uh, children are going through, such as um, corporal punishments, some of them are having their shoes taken away, or at least being forced to fit ill-fitting shoes. So it's basically awful. But by the end of the story, um, Nicholas Nickleby has been successful in bringing down the falls of Wackford Squares, and you have almost the reverse opposite image, in which it happened to be another day for the brimstone and trickle, but instead the children have revolted, and they are instead force-feeding um, Miss Squares the concoction that she was trying to feed them, as well as dunking her son's Wackford Jr.'s head into the, the bowl of trickle itself. This book did have quite a significant influence, so it was published in 1839, and by 1840, um, practically all of the schools, including Bowes Academy in Yorkshire, went out of business. Interesting, a lot many people still actually criticize Dickens for not going far enough with his work. Um, they consider these schools to be low-hanging fruit because more legislative reforms were needed to really improve the lives of the poor. So, with that, we're going to go to one of his other very influential books. And this would be Bleak House. Bleak House was Dickens' ninth novel, and it's considered to be his best work. In fact, there are a few um, academic scholars who view this book as a primary source in understanding the history of English law. Now, there are many different characters and several different slump pots, but one of the main stories of this house, of this book, is that there's this long-running court case in the Court of Chancery called Jardis Jardis, which is happening because there's several conflicting wills written by one person. Bleak House is basically an indictment of the English Chancery Court system. So the Chancery Court were part of the English civil justice system. It existed side by side with the law courts, and they dealt with actions dealing with wills, estates, and property. But all the cases were decided on the principles of equity. In other words, each case was considered on its own merits and precedent related matters. You could have two cases that were really similar, but could have completely different outcomes. The Chancery Court was looked as very ineffective, expensive, and difficult to navigate. Litigants were charged fees at every step of the process, and those fees usually went directly to court officials. So there was a lot of room for corruption. And consequently, for some cases, it could take years, even decades, for cases to come to trial. It was a complete bureaucratic nightmare. And that was basically the focus of this book, because um, the main characters are still kind of in the battle of this particular course case and it's already been a few decades and they're still fighting it to illustrate this so here again is another image that was done by fizz we have the attorney and client fortitude and impatience um, and this is showing one of the main characters richard here who is again one of the main members within the case who's trying to get resolved and he's with his lawyer and again some of the details that fizz has done 
with this is quite amazing. So down here, there's this book that has an open to a page, there's a maze on it. That is actually kind of meant to represent the legal maze of the Chancery. Down along the bottom, there's this spool of tape that's meant to show sort of like the red tape mask, the legal tape that ensnares Richard. Other little things that there's some like spider webs along the corners at the top here, and there's this tiny little cat who's trying to chase a mouse and those are kind of meant to represent the game that Bowles is doing onto Richard as he's slowly squeezing him out of his money and basically letting this court case drag on and on. So it was believed that this book did help support judicial reform movements and basically about 20 years after to help um, some of the legal reforms, particularly the Supreme Court Act um, that basically consolidated um, various other different um, court systems, including the Chancery Court, into the court system that we kind of now know today, in which it sort of has its the hierarchy in terms of like local or provincial for us courts, a high or what we call the Supreme Court, as well as the, an appeal court. So it definitely did have an impact. And with that, I am going to pass it back to Nicholas to finish things off. All right, thank you very much, Ayana. Um, yeah, I'd like to thank everyone for joining our final Secrets of the Vault session of 2021. This has been a great program this year, sort of the first time really running at the scale. And uh, so I'd like to, I know some of you have come to many, many of these sessions. I'd like to thank you for bringing your questions and your inquiring lines to these little meetups. Uh, we're busy planning next year's sessions, what they'll look like, and they'll probably be able to announce that soon. There'll probably be a few reruns of programs you missed and hopefully a few new interesting ones, but we can't make any promises yet. Um, so keep an eye on our website, keep an eye on our social media, and hopefully we'll know what the new year looks like uh, soon. Um, I'm going to wrap up with the, uh, the most recent citation of Dickens in the house that I could find, which was in 2020 from a government member called Gary Begg, a um, member of the legislature, who quoted the opening lines of uh, Bleak House, or not Bleak House, A Tale of Two Cities, another one of Dickens' masterpiece, saying, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief and the epoch of incredulity. Uh, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair, we had everything before us, we had nothing before us, we were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that uh, some of its noisiest authorities insisted on being received for good or evil in superlative degree of comparison only. Um, MLA Beck continued, that memorable passage is of course the opening paragraph from A Tale of Two Cities, an 1859 novel by Charles Dickens set in London and Paris before and during the Re revolution. Those words penned more than 160 years ago sound eerily like where we find ourselves today. Times are tough and our future is uncertain, but there is, is there hope? At the start of this legislative session, in facing the enormous challenges we all face together, let's commit to working together to bring the house of hope to all our citizens who are looking at us. Let's join each other in finding that path forward together. I think that's a good message, a good example of what these sort of lessons that Charles Dickens can give us, uh, even today in Canada, at this difficult time. Um, if anyone has any questions, I know we're a little bit over time, but uh, we can still spare some time for questions. If anyone would like to ask anything for what we've talked about today, that would be perfect. Turn on your mics or uh, type into the chat. Any questions? Any queries, qualms, quibbles, quandaries? I have more of a comment. Uh, sure. Thank you so much. Um, I really enjoy this sort of like storytelling, uh, you know, new formats and old books. It's really fascinating. And I um, have been uh, sending the links to my school pres uh, principal, my PAC council for my kids' school here in Tassis, British Columbia. And I think that it's sort of my way to sort of recruit the next parliamentary reporters and, uh, you know, storytellers. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much. Yeah, it, it's wonderful to, to hear that. And we've had lots of kids signing up for virtual programs. We also have a poetry uh, contest coming up called Democracy in Me, uh, which is being run by the legislature and by government house and the speaker. 
So that's open to school-age children to submit poetry, and then the winners will have their poetry displayed in the Parliament buildings. So uh, it's due in February, so if you know anyone of a school age that's interested in that, uh, you know, they can show another way that writers and uh, artists can influence Parliament, even at a young age. Any other questions, comments, anything else? All right. Well, it looks like that. I'll that. just ask one question. It's just me, Sarah Perfect. Fowler, again. I, I was wondering, since you guys are sort of Dickens experts, how many uh, books did Charles Dickens write in his whole career? If you, may, That's maybe a hard question to answer because there's too many to count or I don't even know um but it, it kind of depends what you mean by books right because you um, said you noticed it, you said earlier it was like a serial thing where it was like a, a, a continuous uh journal entries but filtered through fiction right you know like I I guess the, the serial thing is like it's not one work it's a collection and it's like um not like not like a war and peace, even though Great Expectations is kind of like a war and peace in the sense that it's like a completed thing. But um, the, yeah, sorry, it's a strange question then. I can at least uh, potentially, in terms of his novels, he wrote 15. And then, and then of course, and, and then there's all of his short stories and um, he had at least five novellas. Um, and then, uh, yeah, again, he had various other different types of short stories. Like Dickens, like was actually known for writing. Um, like after the success of *Christmas Carol*, he actually tried to write um, a different Christmas uh, short story. Almost every year after that, there's five main ones that um, people know of. Yeah. So, so sort of 15 main novels, all of which were published in serial format. So. Every month or so, there'd be another chapter that would be released in some newspaper or periodical. Christmas Carol and the other novellas were actually published as single books, which is a little bit different. So Christmas Carol was never published in, in serial format, as well as uh, The Chimes, Cricket on the Hearth. Uh, there's a couple more. Uh, there, there's at least a ghost, two. another ghost one. There's a ghost one. Uh, and then there's another one called or I always forget this one. Anyhow, there's sort of five Christmas novellas. But then on top of that, he wrote a number of short stories, he wrote a number of reportage, he wrote a handful of plays, uh, sometimes adapted from his work, sometimes not. He wrote essays and editorials. Uh, the dude is prolific. And so 15 sort of the canonical novels that his reputation is based on, five novellas, and then a number of other works of, I'd say, diminishing literary quality. <laughs> and he also edited two magazines. Oh. oh, and there's also a book called Household Words. No, no, not, not Household Words. Um, That's I can't remember what it's called. But he wrote a book under the pseudonym of his wife, uh, his first wife, Catherine. Um, it, uh, we think it was probably him, and it's not one of those situations where it's like, oh, it's sort of sexist to assume. Dickens was obsessed with housekeeping. He was fascinated with the proper maintenance of a middle-class household, and so he was so fascinated by this that uh, we have reason to believe that because it wasn't appropriate for a man of his social standing to write that book, he took on his wife's pseudonym to write out all of his opinions on how to keep a home effectively, um, which actually became quite popular. Uh, I, there's a question in the chat about uh, Sidney Smith Haldeman Dickens, what's his son's name? Sidney Smith Haldeman Dickens came here on the HMS Zealous, um, along with his pet monkey, apparently, and made a big splash in Victoria's theater scene. And Sarah Gray is asking if there are other famous first editions in our collection, and if there will be webinars about them. Uh, there are other famous uh, first editions in our collection, and hopefully we'll be able to run some webinars about them. Uh, I don't we're know. Negotiation. We're in negotiation. Yeah, we're figuring out what we can do. Um, but some other very prominent writers in the course of English history uh, are within the library's vaults, and we're very excited to have them there. We're going to have to stay coy about that for, for a little bit longer. What other content have you done in the past for these, like, webinars of, uh, like, I noticed on Halloween there was something about, like, sabers and swords and stuff. Was that, it was like a legislative we did story? Races. 
Maces, yeah, sorry. We did the Maces. Maces, yeah. So, so that was like we a... did a feature on the Maces because we have um, two of the Maces in the library's vault. And then we've also done um, a bit of a history of Hansard since we had a couple of copies of the Dineural Occurrences in the library's vault. So we focused it on how Hansard had developed. And then we did the, the Politician's Bookshelf, which again was a, a series of different books that the library had received from past MLAs with it. So like from Amor de Cosmos and uh, Helmican and uh, E.W. Higgins. Higgins, yes. Fantastic. I'll probably rerun those, some of those in the new year, uh, if everything goes fine. There's still lots, lots to, to work out with about that, but uh, keep your eyes peeled. Let's hope to announce more programs. Yeah, it's a really great program. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. All right. Well, I think we should probably wrap up since we've gone on a little bit over time. So I want to thank all of you for, for coming to join us here. Uh, I hope to see you down at the Parliament Buildings if you have a chance. And... Uh, Hopefully have a, a happy holidays, uh, uh, a Merry Christmas, in the case may be, or, uh, and as, as Tiny Tim says, God bless us, everyone. Um, yeah, so I hope you enjoyed this session and have a nice day. God bless us, everyone. I'm so happy to be blessed. It was a great presentation. I'm so glad that we could listen to that. So that was, what was it it's called? Um, exit full screen, come back to the calendar. This is season's greetings from the parliamentary education. Uh, and it was a story about Dickens. Please accept this invitation to the politics and holidays of Charles Dickens offered over Zoom on Wednesday, December 15th at 2 p.m. The program will last between 45 and 60 minutes. You may log in up to 10 minutes early so that we can admit you to the meeting and work out any technical glitches. The program works best if you can connect using computer audio and video rather than over the phone. You can connect using the expanded Zoom information below or by clicking this link. And with that, that is our 2022 season at the Green Antler Waterfowl Podcast. We are, or 2021, we're moving towards 2022 in this new year. And uh, Sarah Fowler and the rest of us at the Green Antler are really... Um, Hoping that everyone has the best Christmas and find some, some love and some blessings and gratitude. I will finish this recording by reading another book by Ian and Vladiana Krikorka. And it's called The Christmas Carp. And it is To My Granddaughter Nyla. To help her get to know the playground of my childhood. Vladliana, to Radman, Megan, and my friends in Prague. Carp is no Kung Pao chicken, but it's delicious in its own way. And it's published by Orca Books, uh, text copyright uh, 2006. On a chilly December morning, Radim and his friend Mila stood on Charles Bridge, spitting at the boats that passed below. If I ever catch you bothering these boats, there will be trouble, Radmin's mother had warned him more than once. But don't be such a chicken, Radmin, Mila had taunted, and that's that and and what were the chances that his mother would walk by? Below on the Valtava River, angry riverboat captains shook their fists at the two friends. Cut that out, you two, they shouted. I have half a mind to come up there and teach you a lesson. 
But of course, they never did. Radman and Mila grew bored of their mischief and walked to the old town square where the huge Christmas tree stood. It towered above the dozens of stands selling hot mulled wine and trinkets. Looking almost taller than the cathedral behind it, lights flash on and off all over its branches, turning the children's thoughts to presents and Christmas chocolate. From there, they walked to Wenceslas Square, where they hoped on they hopped on number 14 tram that would take them home. What did you ask baby Jesus for this Christmas? asked Mila. Well, I really want it new want new skates, but my mom says that kids who don't eat their cauliflower don't get expensive gifts like that. That's easy, Mila said. Eat your cauliflower. Yuck. Radman hated cauliflower, and he wasn't sure that eating another bite of it bite was worth all the presents in the world. But that night, Radman's family had cauliflower again for dinner. And you want expensive Christmas gifts? Eat your cauliflower or I'll tell baby Jesus what a naughty boy you are, scolded his mother. Radman scowled as he nibbled at his dinner. Even Bruchek the dog turned his nose up at the bits that Radman slipped under the table. The next day, Radman and his father went out to buy a carp for Christmas dinner. Huge wooden barrels filled with fish lined the main streets of Prague. Radman's father was very particular about his Christmas carp. Every year he would walk down the street holding Radman's hand, stopping in, stopping at the rare barrel that met his approval. Where were the fish from, he would ask. What had they been fed? How long had they been in the barrel? Sometimes when Radman thought they had settled on a fish his father would grumble and give it another poke then he would thank the man for his time and walk away you see radman he said he would say that carp was fatty it hadn't had enough exercise no we can find a, a better for dinner this christmas was no different they walked around their neighborhood for hours made dozens of stops and asked what seemed like Hundreds of questions before Radman's father finally settled on a carp. The vendors fished out of the container, weighed it, and put it in the canvas bag they had brought with them. Radman and his father wished the man a Merry Christmas and headed home with their prize. But, oh my... My, but you two have chosen a fine fish this year, Radman's mother cried. Go put him in the bathtub and come for supper. Radman and his father went to the bathroom, filled the tub with and dumped the fish in with a splash. Your mother's right, Radman, said his father. We picked out a real beauty. Now, carp are not beautiful, no matter what Radman's father said. In fact, they are very ugly fish indeed. They have bulbous eyes and whiskers like a cat, and this one was no different. You're very ugly, said Radman to the fish. The fish floated in the middle of the tub, doing nothing at all. Radman and his father left the carp and went to have dinner. Thankfully, there was no cauliflower. After dinner, Radman had, did not listen to the soccer game on the radio with his father. Instead, he sat on a stool in the bathroom and watched the Christmas carp. It floated just as it had, just as they just as they had left it opening and closing its mouth. I'm sorry we have to eat you, said Radman. The carp did not react. Either he didn't care or he didn't understand. I don't even like carp that much, said Radman. It's only a little bit better than cauliflower, and I hate cauliflower still. Nothing from the fish. As he watched the fish, Radman got to thinking that it looked a bit like his Uncle Carl. He has whiskers like you and bulging eyes, Radman informed the carp. I think I'll call you Carl. Carl gave no sign as to whether he liked his new name or not. Radman's mother came in and packed him off to bed, but Radman had trouble sleeping. He tossed and turned, and all 
Through the night, he dreamed fishy dreams. The next morning, Radman and Mila went skating. I feel bad for Carl, said Radman, as they walked to the rink. Who's Carl? Mila asked. Our Christmas carp. He looks a lot like my uncle. You named your dinner after a relative, said Mila. Do you do that every year? Mila's family never had carp for Christmas dinner. Her father must be the one person in Prague who hated carp, she thought. I know, he's just a fish, but I'm sure something goes on behind those bulging eyes, said Radman. Mila was not so sure. After all, fish were very stupid animals. She, it's not like you can teach them to sit or fetch or beg, she said. When they got to the rink, Radman put on his old skates, the ones with holes no larger than so large that the wind whistled around his toes while the two friends whizzed around the ice. After a little while, Radman's toes got so cold that he had to stop. Say hi to Carl for me, Mila said, laughing over her shoulder as she skated away. As soon as he got home, Radman went to the bathtub to see Carl. His mother came in with a bowl of breadcrumbs. Here, Radman, she said, feed the fish so he'll be nice and plump for tomorrow. Radman's threw the crumbs to Carl, who sluggishly slurped them up. Maybe you're not so ugly after all, he told the fish. The scales on your belly shine like hundreds of little gold coins. No wonder people carry them around in their wallets for good luck. It was hard to say whether or not Carl appreciated the compliment. In the living room, Radman's mother was writing New Year's cards. Mom, said Radman, maybe we could let Carl go and have chicken. Who's Carl? Asked his mother without looking up from her writing. I named our carp Carl because he looks like Uncle Carl. Radman's mother laughed at the idea that the carp in the bathtub looked like her brother. Don't be ridiculous, Radman, she said. Nobody eats chicken at Christmas. Radman went to bed that night feeling sad indeed for his scaly friend. At six o'clock, Radman woke, woke knowing that he had to do what he had to do. He dressed in a dark in the dark and snuck into the bathroom with the canvas bag. Radman scooped up Carl along with some water so he could breathe. Come on, Carl, whispered Radman. Radim, I'm going to save you. The fish gave no reply. Radman eased the apartment door shut behind him and took the stairs so the noisy elevator wouldn't wake his parents. He and Bruchek walked to the walked around to the side of the building where Mila lived and tapped on her window. Mila opened the window sleepily. What are you doing? Do you know what time it is? She demanded. I'm saving Carl. I'm going to let him go in the Vlatava, said Rad Radman. Radim. Your parents will kill you, Mila said, her eyes wide. Can I come? By the time Radman... Radim and Mila reached the edge of the river Carl had been in the bag for a long time. Worried that he might be running out of oxygen, they plunged the bag into the river and opened it so the carp could swim out. But the ugly fish just floated inside the canvas bag. Come on, Carl, swim, shouted Radim. Do you want to end up on the Christmas dinner table like all your friends? Carl inched his way out of the bag into the river. Then he stopped and turned to face Radim and Mila. He opened and closed his mouth a few times. Finally, he turned again and swam away. Well, I guess that's it, said Mila. Let's go home. All the way home, Radman, Radim worried about what his parents would say. I think you'll be lucky to get a lump of coal in your stocking this year, offered Mila. Yep, she continued. Your parents will be pretty mad. And she was right. When Radim's parents woke up and saw that their Christmas dinner had escaped, they were very confused. But how is that possible? They asked one another. 
Radim's father knelt and looked all around and under the bathtub, but Carl was nowhere to be found. It didn't take them long to ask their son if they knew anything about the matter. I'm sorry, said Radim said. I felt so bad about eating Carl that I just had to let him go. What are we going to eat for dinner now? demanded his mother. We'll never find another carp in time, said his father crossly. It was growing light, but the only person about was the local lamplighter putting out the streetlights. Not a carp barrel in sight. Radim stared at the ground. But Radim's parents couldn't stay angry with their son for long. I guess we'll be eating a lot of cauliflower tonight, they joked with one another. Just then the phone rang. It was Mila's father. Our daughter told us a funny little fish story today, he said, laughing. And and as you seem to be short, one Christmas dinner, my wife and I thought you would like to join us tonight. That Christmas, despite what Radim's mother had said, both families sat down together and had a delicious Christmas chicken, one picked out very carefully by Mila's father. And though Radim had robbed his parents of their delicious carp, something special was waiting for him under the tree after all. But he still had to eat his cauliflower. So that's a fun story. And I'll read the back of the book. And that will be this Christmas episode. As he watched the fish, Radim got to thinking that it looked like a bit like his Uncle Carl. He had whiskers like you and bulging eyes. Radim informed the carp. I think I'll call you Carl. Carl gave no sign as to whether he liked his new name or not. In Carl the Christmas Carp, Ian Krikorka writes a story drawn from his mother's childhood and from life in present-day Prague. In the vibrant illustrations, award-winning illustrator Vladlana Krikorka Loving recreates the city of her birth and her youth down to the glory, last glorious detail. Ian Krikorka lives, writes, and designs websites in Toronto, Ontario. Carl, notwithstanding, fish is one of Ian's favorite foods. Vladiana Krikorka is one of Canada's most beloved illustrators of children's books, including Silver Moon, also written by Ian, Baseball Bats for Christmas, and Orphans in the Sky. Vladiana lives and works in Toronto, Ontario. For Carl, she worked in mixed media on watercolor paper so that's an orca book publishers and i am wishing any readers out there merry christmas and you know the the dickens and the um the holiday uh is really just a a way for us to engage with each other and invite our neighbors over for for um for a meal and to engage with each other in a in a way that takes care of each other you know i think that um that's one way that covid has really challenged our ways of being and i've said it before maybe not on this podcast but definitely in um, circles that I talk in sometimes uh, that it takes a long time to reprogram human behavior and with me being in midlife and not have had any experience of a pandemic before uh, in my life previous to this and how I remember living in Toronto during SARS but it didn't affect my life as much and maybe that speaks to how I wasn't in politics then and how I wasn't sort of hyper aware of trends or policies and uh, and maybe it's just a different time and I think that for me uh, reflecting on the pandemic and how it's trying to change human behavior and how it's trying to it's assuming that everyone is rational and secure and able to make, you know, 
good decisions for themselves and I feel like that's not um that's not how humans operate humans operate in story and meaning and relationship and systems you know the system of checking in on your neighbor or getting your friend to help you bust out your Christmas fish and release it into the water um you know I calling on people to help you do something that you know may um result in your hunger (laughs) or um that you know you can't even see the consequences of I guess you know so that's sort of the children's part of it but there's a lot of ways that uh not checking up on people uh we don't know the consequences because we don't need to be involved I guess right and I as someone who lives far away from their family uh really mourn the way that I can't be with my loved ones at these sort of important times of the year and as it's getting dark every day and we're moving towards um the return of the light and the the dark nights of the year and the big dreams that we have and the ways that we're hopeful and grateful for any kind of blessings and charity and uh you know engagement for me I always come down to like um feeling like you're a part of it right feeling like you're a part of whether that's democracy or the you know the charity or you know economy it was really interesting uh in the talk about that they put out with the legislature about dickens about how he was obsessed about house cleaning that's like so fascinating to me because i guess i would come in on the opposite side of that and i would feel like i'm someone who uh is obsessed about not house cleaning or is obsessed about um trying to imagine ways that are not routine and domestic or monotonous and uh you know I know that this is something that I'm working on and these are the goals that I have for the new year trying to take joy in some basic things that you know brushing and flossing my teeth you know and and finding ways that this self self-care is uh sort of filling my cup and making me sort of the first character in my story um just sort of looking back uh this has been a huge um journey for me to do this waterfowl podcast and you know, I go up and down with it. Sometimes I feel like I don't want to keep doing this because I am pulling teeth and it's hard and I don't know if I'm doing it right because there's not a lot of feedback um, except that they say that there's no waterfowl in it. But there was that one time um, when I was chasing the trumpeter swans in the inlet. Uh, and I just uh, wonder about what it could be. I try to engage people and, uh, and, and recruit people, you know, always like looking for people to be involved in their own, uh, decisions that affect them and their, their well-being. you know, like I have been involved in so many boards and in like being members and then sitting on the executive bodies of different groups and I remember getting a trophy for public speaking when I was a child and also no it was a medal but then the trophy was for bicycle rodeo and and I feel like these are the ways that I've been shaped and now it's like my sort of job to shape others and to like find the ways in which I got to where I am now uh and how I can sort of pay it forward and help people uh, 
attain the skills that I celebrate now. Like public speaking is a really important skill and I am doing it by myself, to myself here in my house. And <laughs> I don't know who the audience is uh, for this this podcast. Uh, and I don't know how even the subject matter, you know, it's, it's so fluid and it changes every day. And um, sometimes it's asking guests about how they feel. Sometimes it, it talks about advocacy. Uh, other times, you know, it's exploring the ways that we look for hope or despair. You know, like I, I really am trying to make it non-judgmental on one side or the other. You know, I really value hope because I have in phases of my life described myself as an optimist and I also have uh, I guess the balance of that, the other side, you know I, I want to understand how both sides are important to the whole, you know, it, it can't be one way or another it always has to be both because there's so many ways of understanding and the way that you understand is maybe different than the way other people understand. And I think that telling stories has something that I've, is something that I've always done. I don't know how this became what I do. And I don't know why, you know, politics and uh, sort of (laughs) listening to myself talk or um, just oration and reading, research. Um, I, it's all one thing. It's a curiosity, you know, and I am curious about a lot of things. I'm curious, uh, a guest earlier said, pull our part of the rope. And I guess that's what I always want to be asking people to do. You know, like, I I get a little um, low when I think about all the things that we could do when I focus on the opportunities. Because... To me, there's so many, and they're all squandered. It reminds me of when I was younger, as a teenager, I did an art piece that was inspired by a Sylvia Plath um, book, and it's called Opportunity Plums, and it sort of talks about how in the process of deciding which plum to eat, She's watching them just rot on the tree as she's trying to consider which one is the best one for her to choose. And I guess that's sort of like picking out your favorite Christmas carp, too, where it's like, oh, this one's not good. Too fatty, needs more exercise. Or, you know, like this plum is going to be sweet and ripe. And that's just what I'm looking for. And putting so much choy, uh, time and effort and energy into choosing the the thing uh, instead of appreciating the thing even if it's not of our choosing you know like oh I wish this wasn't cauliflower it's not my favorite you know <laughs> but uh, I I I'm so grateful when I do have cauliflower <laughs> that's just part of the the vegetable venture and the the food security that is living in a town without um uh, farms, cauliflower farms directly adjacent. Um, but we do, we have what we have and we're grateful for it. That's something that I'm, I'm going to try to say more. You know, I, I work on my anger issues and my, uh, ambition and my, um, optimism slash pessimism as the mood takes me um but gratitude is something that you know I wish I taught my kids more I know there was this 
Buddhist prayer once. I read about taking a minute before you eat your food to say thank you for all the people who made it possible for you to eat. And, you know, um, whereas I... I've become this barking dog, you know, sit still, use 